Welcome to Say That, podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Serving size, one episode. With us all the way from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Lee Younger. How many calories is one episode of Say That? Zero. Sodium content, surprisingly high. <laughs> yes, I was gonna. I was gonna say that. Of course, the the serving size of any podcast is one episode because that's kind of what makes it. You know, that's the unit they're doled out in. Then I thought about those podcasts that put out like three hour episodes, and yeah, they probably have whatever the audio equivalent of like the serving size two cookies is. Servings per yeah, pack, yeah, nine. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got a great show lined up. We've got some of your fantastic questions. But first, I must declare a church attendance emergency. What? Oh, no. And this one is, depending on how you feel about such things, an actual emergency. Not <laughs> always the case in the emergency segments. Wait, are you saying sometimes that we have emergency topics that may not actually be emergencies? That can't well, be. Well, I think it's, it's a question of to whom is it an emergency? We've uh-huh. only done this every week for like 12 years. Yeah. There's got to be that many emergencies in Christendom. Absolutely. Yeah, Jed, are you implying that there are people in media who just kind of come up with something and treat it as a big deal, even if it's not a big deal? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the emergency is not. The, as of now, unlike some other uh, entities that put out uh, recorded media, we can uh, assure you that we have not been sued for $800 million. So hey. <laughs> that's not the emergency. Uh, but in a semi, maybe a semi related emergency, um, according to Lifeway Research, which is a source of things <laughs> and a source of other things, but in this case, it's a source of um, church information. Uh, in 2019, the last year they have data for, Approximately 3,000 Protestant churches were started in the U.S. That's not the emergency, though you could make a case that it could be. Um, <laughs> the other half of that is, but 4,500 Protestant churches closed, according to estimates Uh-oh. from national-based LifeWay Research. The Evangelical Research Organization analyzed congregational information with 34 denominations and groups representing 60% of U.S. Protestant churches to arrive at the church plant and closure numbers for 2019. For comparison, in 2014... There were 3,700 closures and 400 open, 4,000 openings. So uh, those numbers have gone underwater. I would like to know, I, I'm, I, I would love to know that there's like a, some kind of nerdy super fan out there who could kind of compile this information. But the number of times in this podcast over the last 12 years or so when Jed has said a statement like, now I would go to that church. Like, then the statement that immediately preceded that, if you were to make a list of those things, like I think, I think there was, I think waffle bar was one of the yeah, things. A lot yeah. of them are breakfast sweet related. <laughs> yes. I think, yes. I think there was a, a breakfast cereal bar. Um, Many donut that, that related. Was, yeah. Yes. And, but I, I also think there were things like, there was like a, um, there was like, uh, like, there was like a professional wrestling element yeah. to, yeah. Uh, you know, I, there's several of these things over the years. Here's what I'm saying to all these church closures. Did you try what the say that podcast host said they would go to your ter- church to attend? It's not sounding like it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, 
Here's the thing. If you've not given everybody a free apple fritter on the way in, I think it's worth asking if you've even tried to have church. <laughs> exactly. Man does not live right? on bread alone. Have a fritter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, let, let's let's tell the truth. I love an apple fritter. And if you have spiritual thoughts you'd like to share, I am at least happy to listen to said thoughts as long as it takes me to consume said apple fritter. This is this is an arrangement I think we can all live with. Now, depending on how stupid your spiritual thoughts are, I might speed eat. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a this is a principle we've talked about many times, a staple of youth and college ministry, which is start with pizza. Figure everything else out yeah. after that. That's yeah. right. That's there's a reason that pizza is the basis of many, many youth and young adult ministry programs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so so they're, you know, they're taking it well, as you can imagine, with a plum. I assume that all these people who uh, started a church and it didn't work out, they just say, well, you know, the body, the Lord moves in mysterious ways and people's spiritual needs are changing. So I'll just go get a job and be a, a tribute, contributor to my society in that way. And just, nope, nope, nope. They're all trying to uh, restart their own thing because they can't not be in charge of something. Ah. To the point where there is a, a strategy outlined in the 2018 book dying to restart by two guys. I'm not going to mention uh, where you just kind of close <laughs> your church down and then re, re kick it up. What grand opening grand closing. Wow. I mean, like that's the whole, we're going to close down and then just relaunch under a new name. Like that's typically because you were doing something super sketchy, man. Like that's not generally a sign of good things. This sounds like a. It sounds like a bit from like Abbott and Costello or something like that. It's like they obviously didn't want what we were selling. Let's just try it again. Yeah, yeah. You and me. We were talking before we came on air that one is one industry with this does happen is restaurants, and if yeah. you there's there's an area in your town where a restaurant was there and it closes. And a suspiciously similar restaurant with a slightly different name and most of the same employees opens up. That means that restaurant probably either lost its liquor license or failed its health screening. So that (laughs) restaurant under that name can no longer technically exist. But now this exists. So to Chad's point, um, maybe not the best idea. Let's see. According to Faith Communities Today, which I'm sure is just a rip-roaring publication, Study Absolutely. in 2020, half of all churches in the United States have less than 65 people worshiping in services each week. Wow. Oh, wow. So apparently these people's plan for this is just shut it down and then reopen with some slight retooling and fire it back up. Um, I hope that uh, they're doing the kind of like high school band thing where it's not that we kicked Tim out of the band. It's that the band broke up and then four of the five members reformed a band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. The The other version of this that I'm told um, from folks in, in kind of the construction world is that like, you know, people like, you know, our, our work is guaranteed for three years, um, but it's only guaranteed as long as that company still exists. Yeah. So, if if Jake's Roofing uh, LLC goes out of business and be you know and Jake's Roofing Palooza LLC forms, 
none of those guarantees um, actually work anymore. This, this is what I'm told, which I'm, I'm inclined to believe. But I love the idea of the, the church basically made promises that they definitely couldn't pull off. And so this is a way to get out from under those. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Like the spiritual promises that we yeah, couldn't right. actually fulfill. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I'm thinking of like a pastor, like a particularly difficult congregant and being like, Steve, we're going to get through this. We're going to meet together every week. It's just, I'm going to be there for you. Just whatever it takes. We're going to get you the other side of this crisis in your life. And the one day Steve was just a bit much and pastor's like, all right, that's it. First church is gone. Relaunching next week is second church. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> that promise came from first church. Not going to be able to help you with these specific problems. To your point about the uh, high school band, Matt, I, I was in a high school band one time that kicked out a bass player, and we were in actually my garage where I lived in high school, and um, and we had this difficult, awkward conversation, and he became so frustrated that he rips his uh, he rips the power cord of his bass amp out of the wall. Something happened with the electricity. And all of the lights went out in the garage. Wow. This was an evening practice. The sun had already gone down. All of the lights went out, and we just heard some shuffling. And then, like, a few minutes later, my dad had, like, gone and found, like, the the fuse box, flipped a couple of breakers, and the lights came back on, and we were all sitting there, but Jeff had gone. (laughs) Wow. We didn't even hear his car start up. It was amazing. It was like he was Batman or something. Dang, dude. (laughs) Jeff, maybe if we knew you could do that, we'd have kept you in the band. (laughs) (laughs) Some Alice Cooper style stage magic going on. Yes, quite. So uh, so one of the stories that somebody shares of a thing restarting is, uh, you know, small church, 65 people. If we keep going like this, we're going to church. We're going to die. This pastor told the Wichita Eagle. That might drag out for five, ten years. We're not accomplishing anything the way we are going now. Instead, the church's board relinquished control and will be replaced by pastors and leaders of other churches that are growing. They've agreed to sit on Westside's board for two to three years to help it succeed in relaunching. So we've got some weird kind of um, corporate takeover 80s guy thing going on, apparently. Yeah. Um. I do like that at every turn, the people who wrote this book and this thing, like it's not, it's not about just having the same old church with like some updated uh, paint slashed on it. We just brought in people who all do church the same way and they're going to tell us how to do it. Yeah. It's the Bain capital of churches. Yeah. There's (laughs) going to be some distressed wood at the back of that stage and a nice glass, glass or see-through plastic podium. Nice wireless mic, drum yeah. cage. You can picture it in your mind. If you've ever seen a YouTube clip of Megachurch Sermon, you can picture exactly what these are all going to look like. Should I visit the cafe in the narthex? I certainly hope you will. Okay. <laughs> but this, this did bring us to the idea of where might we look for some more interesting ideas? If you're going to shut it down and relaunch, you might as well really try uh, to overhaul some things. And we, I looked as I uh, rarely do, but in this case have, to the British monarchy. Ah. As you may be aware <laughs> that sometime uh, around the time we're recording this, I don't know when it is, uh, the King Charles is getting cor- uh, coronated. Uh, we hope it goes better for him than it did for previous King Charles's. Sure. 
Yeah. So, so you're allowed to sometimes change your you name. Have to Maybe sign you things. Have. Yeah, sometimes you have to sign things that don't go well for you when your name's Charles. Yeah, not great. Um, but uh, because Britain is a, a goofy country full of um, uh, hilarious, hilarious things, I'm going to read some real roles in the coronation put out by the, the royal family themselves. Uh, Lord Hofton of Richmond will be carrying the sword of temporal justice. <laughs> okay. Not to be confused with Lord Richards of Hermanstow, who will be carrying the sword of spiritual justice. Aha! I like the idea that somebody could carry the sword of temporary justice. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, that's very poetic. One could argue that most swords represent temporary justice. <laughs> yes. Uh, somebody named Air Chief Marshal Lord Peach, which I feel like is <laughs> at least one too many titles. You need to get rid of one of them. Yeah. <laughs> is carrying the hilariously titled Sword of Mercy. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, someone does he named... cut the peach with the mercy? I mean, maybe. Feels like it feels like that's what the governor of Georgia should have to change their name to at all times, <laughs> Lord Peach. Yes. Uh, Lord President Penny Mordaunt uh, is carrying the sword of state, which is kind of lame compared to the other ones. And yeah. not to be left out, the Archbishop of a place called Arma is, and again, I quote from the website, presenting the orb. The orb! <laughs> the orb! Wow! So, he here's why I say that, other than get getting an excuse to say the phrase, carrying the sword of temporal justice and presenting the orb. So, okay, this is, it, it just occurred to me because, I don't know, my brain works this way. I was just looking at this image that Matt sent us of the art, archbishop who is presenting the orb. I just thought, what if you just flipped that word backwards and this guy's job was to present the bro? Oh, bro. Given certain revelations that have recently come out about King Charles's brother, I think the official uh, thing will be hiding the bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you gotta have a bro hider. From any Absolutely. and all press that are there. Oh, gosh. Actually, I gotta say, for all kinds of events, that would be a really, really useful service. Like, you know, weddings, graduations, whatever, and you got that one embarrassing family member. If you could hire a person where, like, you still invite the embarrassing relative, but this person makes sure they're busy and distracted and can't cause a problem the whole time. Like, that is a market opportunity, man. Quite. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about kind of a... a um, it's a bouncer. A, yeah, a formal, a formal occasion in between a hitman and a bouncer. They get their targets. Yeah. And you just kind of, you know, just slap scotch and sodas out of Uncle Gary's hand all night. That's your only job. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're the bro sitter. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because whenever this guy feels like he's like starting to head towards a microphone, you nope. just pull out a phone with SportsCenter on it and be like, dude, did you see this? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's yeah. That's right. That's right. Pull over sideways. He'll be like, this is highlights from a 1989 Minnesota Twins game. You're like, right? Yeah. Pretty cool, huh? Kirby Puckett? <laughs> yeah. That was, a, that was a reference for no one. I barely know who Kirby Puckett is. That was. <laughs> but, dude, you went for it. It was yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Quiet. Just one of those fun names to say. Um, but I, I, as we come up with ideas for the the thousands of churches that are apparently doing relaunches in this country, instead of you know helping people or learning what people in your right. community want, or maybe realizing that maybe this town just doesn't have enough people to support this many churches, and you should right. find another way to use your gifts to build forth the kingdom. Apparently, we're not going to do that. So uh, I would put forth 
uh, do away with things like deacon and elder and small group leader that people don't apparently want and sit down with people as you're asking if they want to come and be like, would you like to be our bearer of the sword of spiritual justice? <laughs> like, Oh, I like that. What does that do? Well, you mainly do the announcements, but we will, we will give you a sword. <laughs> <laughs> would you like an orb? You know, I'm trying to think, you know, because I've been to a lot of churches and, you know, I've seen some interesting accoutrement at them. I don't think I've ever seen an orb. I'd kind of like to go to Orb Church just like just once. I'd be curious what Orb Church is like. I like I'm trying to think of how the orb would fit in. And for some reason, what I keep coming back to is like the head of the children's ministry. As some places <laughs> will do like, you know, you know, hands up, ears open or might even do like a. Sometimes you have to do this in high school and college, like have a basically a talisman that you pass around as that person's kind of turned to talk, but but just yeah. literally having just attention children, the orb is out. <laughs> <laughs> if we if we could revisit or put some of these ideas together from the beginning of the conversation till now, we talked about the fact that, you know, that pretty much if you want Jed to come to your church, there needs to be certain kinds of food. Yep. That are going to be available gratis. Yeah. Um, I like the idea that you would have kind of like the, the, you know, the, the archbishop, archbishop of so-and-so who is the bearer of the tots. Oh. And mm. like brings in tater tots. I was thinking you know? the sword of potluck justice. Yes. <laughs> kind of like the person who's in charge of like whenever he brings their thing in, like what goes to the front of the table. And what do we kind of hold in reserve until it needs to come in? Like, yeah. you make that a real position. And depending on how fiercely people in the church take it, you might need to give them a blade. <laughs> a ceremonial cutting of the first casserole. Oh, that's very good. That's very, <laughs> very good. He's got to give people something to put, sink their teeth into, I think is what we're saying. Clearly. Well, I think we solved it. I'm excited personally. It's not it's not that complex, folks. Not that complex. Swords and food. And based on the uh the reading from these studies and the uh blurb I read of this book about our restarting churches, nobody has any better ideas. <laughs> and that's Apparently. always important to remember. So on that, we will declare emergency off. That brings us to your fine questions. If you have a question to write in, you have us all the way to the end, or I'll give you some ways you can touch this. You can scroll on down to your episode description to find those there. Our first question comes in and says, As much as I love making fun of churches and conservative Christian shenanigans, I also can't help but to wonder, why are they so vocal about same-sex stuff when there's nothing more when there's more damaging things in the church like anger, jealousy, jealousy abuse, etc.? I've seen more lives being destroyed because of anger, jealousy, emotion, and spiritual abuse than anything related to the LGBTQ plus community. You will notice when I read that question, I almost said jealousy, which I believe is I almost invented some form of super jealousy there. So oh. be on the lookout for that as well. It certainly has its own ravages. Um, so a great question is it's going to tie into our next question as well. Uh, somebody wrote in just a really, a really great meaty question. So I want to break that up to make sure we got uh, time to discuss a couple of things going on here. But Leah, I love you start us off because I think it's it's a great question and we do kind of on the show a lot because as much as we want the show for you, dear listener to be entertaining and engaging, we also have to get through it without giving ourselves anger aneurysms every week. So yeah, right. there are some things we kind of skip right to making fun of and maybe don't hundred percent go into the, the, the serious side of. So I appreciate this, this question on that. So 
um, in the idea of a lot of people and a lot of churches we're talking about in the first segment, uh, get really hooked in on a couple of things. A lot of them do have to do with things like personal sexuality and uh, gender identity and that kind of thing, as opposed to all these other things. And I think many times over the years, we've pointed out that they do it and that it's silly that they do it and that um, it is wrong that they do it. But we have not done too much getting into the why, which I think is a worthy thing to look at and try to understand what's going on there and what's going on with maybe people who don't go that way as well. Um, so Lee, where do we start off? Man, this is so such a rich question for, <clears throat> in other words, there's so many things that we could talk about. So glad you asked this. It's a very sharp question. It's a very important question. And there's so many things that we could deal with here. I think one of the most important things to realize is that, um, and this is human nature that goes back as far as you want to go back, but the the so-called sin that you don't struggle with is the easiest thing to be self-righteous about. If I don't personally have an issue with a thing, then it's very easy for me to be on a soapbox about how that's the real boogeyman in the community. That's the real thing that's causing problems. Also, uh, and a related idea to that is, and, and, in other words, you just see that a lot. You see people going off about things that they don't have any personal experience with. It's why like a really, really important um, concept is that if there is an issue that everybody is yelling about, that everybody's being judgmental about and all that kind of stuff, a very good principle is don't state your opinion about that if you don't love someone who struggles with it. That's a really, really important principle. Um, I'm not interested in your opinion about any issue if you don't actually love someone who it wrestles with that issue in, in some way, in some form or fashion. So if you, don't, if you don't have any proximity to that issue, I'm not interested in hearing what your opinion about it is. Um, another thing that's really, really important to, to understand, and, and this is a problem that, that churches, religious groups, and not just Christianity, but all kinds of different religious groups have always had, is that private... Like, Private so-called sins are easy to rage about because we only really see the outside of people's lives. Um, a writer that I like named Anne Lamott said that when you meet someone, you don't meet them, you meet their bodyguard. You meet the person that they pay to protect them, to protect the real them from whomever they're actually talking to. We just have to assume that you're being honest about your so-called convictions. We don't actually know what's going on in the private of anybody's lives. So things that are private, like sexuality, things like desire, things like all that kind of stuff, um, and your own kind of concept of your own gender identity, all of those things, these are not things that we can quantify. They're not things that we can actually prove or disprove. And so it's easy to rage about because I don't actually know what, I just have to assume that these people that are raging about these things or that are being judgmental about them are being honest. And we know from <laughs> we know from so many exposés that some of the people who are most vocal about these things are actually not being honest about them in any way. Okay, I think that having said a couple of those things, which include some pretty important principles, I think the number one thing for us to understand from my perspective is that all of this comes down to power. The reason you don't hear a lot of sermons about greed and about the poor, and about all of those things is 
that people who are preaching in congregations don't want to upset the people who are coming to those congregations who are giving them that microphone and keeping them in places of power. That is an extremely important thing to understand. They do not want to rock the boat of the people who are giving them influence, who are giving them a place of power, who are giving them an amplified voice. Because if they were going to speak what the kinds of things that, that are actually the tenets of the Christian faith, then what would, what would happen is that the people who come to those congregations who are wealthy and who are powerful would find themselves extremely uncomfortable. It's exactly what happened when Jesus actually started preaching. It, when you look at Luke chapter 4, just real quick, what you find is that <clears throat> Jesus started preaching. He asked for the, the attendant of the synagogue to hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled that scroll almost to the very end of the book, and he read from what we call chapter 61. And what he read to them was that basically the mission of God in the world is to release the prisoner and to br- proclaim freedom and and um, and uh, basically blessing for the oppressed and the outcast. Um, and as soon as Jesus started telling his hometown folks that he had come on a mission for the poor and the outcast and the foreigner, they literally pulled him out of the synagogue and they dragged him up to the top of a cliff. And it says in Luke chapter 4, you can just read this. I'm not making any of this up. They were going to throw him off the cliff for saying that the mission of God was to care for the poor, the oppressed, the mistreated, and the foreigner. And he managed to get out of that little scrape. But all that to say, when people don't address what are actually the main tenets of the Christian faith, it's usually because they are trying to protect some power. And that's because the the people in their congregations who are giving them power are people who would be made very uncomfortable with dealing with the things that are actually what this religion is about. What you'll find is, does the Bible talk about personal sexuality? Of course it does. Does God have an opinion about how he wants me to live out who I am and the body that I'm in? Yes, he does. But he's more interested in in me walking through a relationship with, with him do I get to a place of trust where we can work that out together? And those instances in that scripture are very, very few, whereas you're going to find the most common command behind love the Lord your God is to love the alien and the foreigner. You're going to find the yeah. most thing that yeah. Jesus talked about was about, he talked about money and possessions and the poor and all of that stuff. The The conversations about sexuality are way out of balance to things about mercy justice, poverty, and care. That's what this is about. But when people won't preach about those things, it's because they're protecting their personal power. I think that's a fantastic place to start that off. And Jed, where do we go from there? Pick right up on that theme of power, and let's expand it out from personal power to political power. So we're super fortunate with this podcast that we have some listeners that are outside of the United States. You may or may not know that in the U.S., there is such an intersection between evangelical Christianity and conservative politics that at this point it is very hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. And so what happens in evangelical churches is very, very closely tied to what is happening in conservative politics and vice versa. Here's why that matters. If you are looking to support a candidate, if you are looking to get someone elected, if you are looking for votes, 
you need an enemy. That's the easiest, best, fastest way to get people to vote and to vote for your guy. And you might have heard the phrase culture war. That's why people in evangelical Christianity and conservative politics, that's why they're obsessed with the idea of culture wars. We have to have a fight that we are presenting that is a, a morally significant and important fight, and our the very fabric of our way of life depends on it. That's why we need you to give money, and that's why we need you to vote. And so we're going to keep finding a thing that we can all be afraid of together, so you will keep giving money and you will keep voting. For what it's worth, um, stuff related to LGBTQ plus people is not the first thing that's been done here. Um, if you go all the way back in the United States to the civil rights movement, um, when it became clear that, in fact, we would not enshrine racism in our laws, at least on a federal level, the people who were really into the whole culture war thing, they realized that they needed something new. They needed a, a new boogeyman that they could scare people with. And so actually, the thing that they landed on next was abortion. And yeah. it took a couple of tries to really, really make that go. It might be shocking to hear that, you know, 55, 60 years ago in the United States, um, abortion was not a terribly controversial thing. Um, people didn't talk very much about it. They didn't, they didn't think very much about it. And the Southern Baptist convention as, as a, as a rule was pro-choice. Yeah, that's right. But previous to 1973. Yes. Being anti-abortion up until the mid seventies was seen as an entirely Catholic thing. Evangelical Christians were entirely on the other side of that. That's right. That's right. And so, but what happened is some, some, some power brokers to go back to that word power basically realized, but we need a culture war. We need a fight that we can fight. That's what's going to get people to vote. That's what's going to get people to give money. We think we can make abortion into that fight. And then everything flip-flopped because they made it into that fight. It, it, it is in essence a, a thing in terms of it being a point of cultural contention. It's an invented thing. Um, that same Instinct is exactly what's going on right now with trans rights and with the treatment of trans people and with trans healthcare. It is the exact same thing of we need a culture war. We need a scary thing so that our people will be afraid and they will vote and they will give us money. It is the same instinct again and again and again. So to build on what Lee is saying, it's power. It's personal power. It's also political power. And it would behoove you as a savvy person of faith to check what war is being waged against what Scripture actually says. Because, for example, the Bible literally says nothing about trans folks. Like nothing. Like it's essentially impossible to have a Christian anti-trans perspective because the Bible literally says nothing about it. And in fact, in the New Testament, if you want to look at the closest thing we get, one of the closest things we get is the Ethiopian eunuch who is held in a position of extreme, extreme honor and import in the history of the church in a very, very good way. It is all about power. Final thought as it pertains to that. There's an old saying. It sounds like a cliche, but it's a cliche because it keeps on being true. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you give people, even people with the best of intentions, a whole bunch of power and a really huge bank account, it tends to get them pointed in directions that have absolutely nothing to do with the good news of Jesus. Absolutely right. Um, to go to another aphorism that's a little more modern, but uh, just as apt, I think, uh, there's a political 
theorist named Frank Wilhoyt, who said a thing that uh, keeps rattling around in my head recently, he says, conservatism consists of exactly one proposition, that there must be in-groups whom the law protects but does not bind, alongside out-groups whom the law binds but does not protect. So to break that down slightly, because the idea of in-groups and out-groups, I think, is exactly what uh, Lee and Jed are talking about here. So uh, to protect the law, the law is meant to serve those people. Um, you may, they're easy to think of, you know, uh, racial majorities, homeowners, the idea that yep. you can literally call the police because that's their job is to ensure your interests, uh, but not bind. Um, there's the, the idea, if you've ever seen, in the, if you've ever been in America and seen a wealthy white person get pulled over for speeding, you may witness someone who doesn't actually think that the police are there to make them follow the law. They're there to make other people follow the law. And then the flip of that is there's the outgroup, which is the the point of the law and uh, authority and power is to limit what they can do, but not protect them in any way, not protect their their rights or their abilities in any way. And I think you see in a lot of the uh, culture war stuff that Jed was pointing out, and a lot of that that gets rebranded as spiritual war, and none of what people are talking about when they're talking about being mean to gay people is anything about anything close to what Paul is talking about when he actually mentioned spiritual warfare. Um, but there is that same thing of, well, if it's us, if it's the group of people in here that Jesus is forgiving and he loves you and he's working with you on your journey. And if you, I don't know, cheated on your spouse or you're really greedy and you did some stuff and you, but, but you know, that's, that's fine. God's got you. He's, he's a, he's a gentle mother hen. And he, now if someone who isn't part of our particular brand of Christianity does something that we disapprove of, that's because they're evil. Then it's not as so much forgiveness on them. They have to change first. Then they can get yep. love and acceptance. Now, from my thing, you just get that. And a great example of that is, again, I know it happens across the, the world, but we are based in America. I'm going to speak to that. Um, it's been a fairly uh, common quippy retort, but it's very reasonable, particularly in the state of Tennessee, where they're passing a lot of transgender bills of uh, there are so far zero proven instances of a transgender person committing sexual assault in a public bathroom. What there are dozens, if not hundreds, of documented and prosecuted cases of are people who work in the pastorate sexually assaulting minors. They're trying to outlaw the drag queens, even though literally zero times do we have any ex any examples of a drag queen doing something untoward. Nobody's trying to outlaw youth pastors. And we all have friends who are youth pastors and are great ones, so we're thankful for that. But if you're playing the numbers and you had to limit what one of these groups can do, yeah, only one of them would make sense. But evangelical, youth, evangelical pastors are in the in-group. People who have a sexuality that confuses and frightens me are in the out-group. So there's that part of it. And as Jed mentioned, uh, all this in the American culture war, and I've, I've talked to some friends from around the world, I have learned that in a lot of church culture stuff, it kind of uh, the old adage that America sneezes and the world gets a cold seems to go super that way for church stuff. I was talking to a, a listener of the show and a, a wonderful young person in the UK several years ago when I had the chance to be over there. And they described it as, oh, we get the same weird uh, church stuff as America. We just get it three years later after you've already <laughs> done it. Wow. And then it comes over here. Uh, so I think uh, that's happening in a lot of ways, but uh, in the American side, it, this is all about racism. This is all about uh, black people getting, particularly it's about school integration. Yep. Um, that's where all this stems from. So then we couldn't be mean to 
black people anymore. So then we decided to be mean to gay people. And then they just lost that cultural war. They just lost. Yep. Um, once uh, equal marriage became recognized in the United States legally, that one was out. And that's when you started hearing about trans people who, yep. by the way, had been there the whole time. Right. But we had another group that was larger that we could be mean to. So now we just kind of move on down the line. And uh, we took that very seriously because it's a serious topic. But as you point out, it is, at the, it is at the heart of it ridiculous. And you can treat it as that way. It's good to think about these things and think about the impacts. They definitely impact people's lives. It's good to be thoughtful about that. But also, it's important to remember that if someone comes to you and says, well, trans, bathrooms, and drag queens, you don't have to debate them point for point. You don't have to have a way to take it. And just be like, no, that's crazy. Yep. Anyway. And yeah. anyway, indeed, we're going to move on to our next question. Again, it is, it is tied, and it says, My church recently put out a response to the denomination approving of same-sex unions. It was not positive. How am I supposed to respond to this issue? For me personally, there are sins worse than one sexual orientation. Even the greatest commandment Jesus gave was basically love God, love others. So for all the response to this issue so far seems so very removed from love. And now this is a kind of a rubber meets the road uh, situation. And while uh, we're, we are not aware of your entire personal situation, so maybe there's, maybe you're very involved in this church, maybe you're new to it, maybe there's lots of churches in your area you can try, maybe there's not a lot, of they're all in the same thing. We don't know, but you did ask what you should do, and we're going to do our best to, to give you some ideas. So Lee, where would we start? Well, I honestly would suggest that you look for another church. Hello. <clears throat> um. You don't have to go to one that you massively disagree with. And you don't have to go to one where you feel like they are being open about principles and policies that you feel are unloving. Um, one of the most important things, I think, for your journey with the Lord is that you are exploring and growing in what it means to love people. If you're going to a place where you feel like that is not happening and you feel like there's a fundamental disagreement about what what it means to be loving and what the love of God would look like, then it, it's really it's a really good idea for you to kind of push on and look for a different place to go. We had um Matt and I have a very dear friend who uh was moving to a uh moving to a different city a few years ago and it happened to be a city where Jed used to live and and so he went to Jed for some advice and, hey, I'm going to this gigantic city and not that I'm going to find all the same areas where you lived, but where should I go to church? And, and Jed very wisely um, asked some, you know, some questions that said, give me an idea of what you're looking for as far as kind of theology, as far as, as far as some, you know, different teachings and stuff like that. And from that point, we're going to be able to make you a lot happier in that decision. Um, in other words, most, most areas, most cities, there's a lot of places where you could go to church. Um, you should look for a place that has um, a, the similar kind of values of what it means to love people that, um, that, that, you, that you are walking into and understanding about your journey. I don't want to be on a podcast dogmatic with people I've never met about what, uh, about how they should view extremely tender issues that, that, um, that 
are ex, ex, you know extremely important within different types of relationships, friendships, family relationships, and all that stuff. My and as a result, my biggest my biggest piece of advice is you should look for a place that that sees love the same way that you know in a similar way that you see it, so that you can grow in that. That kind of thoughtfulness and nuance is why this podcast will never be truly successful. <laughs> we just don't have the hot takes in us, and I wouldn't have it any other way because not looking to get aggregated on TikTok for a clip <laughs> of the the hot the hot take we put out there. We're going to stick with exactly as Lee said. There, there's there's our good solutions, but every situation is individual, and that really is true for everyone's church going experience. I think in some of the kind of thought literati kind of reform bro stuff we we mock on the show here and there there's this idea that the best church is the one that is the most true and the most biblically accurate and all church going is a search for the one that's the right one and there's no right one everybody they're all run by people they're all going to have issues they're all going to have word. uh concerns and things that you disagree with and you're wrong but as lee points out when it's some if it is something that you think is fundamental and you think is very important to your conception of of, of your Christianity as you see it, of the life you want to lead or the kind of person you want to be, you, you, you get to pick your battles on that. I think it's a really good, important point that you just made. I just want to underline it. I know we, we need to throw to Jed here, but um, it's important for people to understand no one in the history of Christendom has ever gone to a church or listened to a pastor or a theologian or an elder who has perfect theology. That's never yeah. happened. That there has never been a church, a denomination, a pastor, an elder, or a Bible teacher who has perfect theology. Therefore, we're all trying to figure this out. I think that's a really good point. I just wanted to underline that. Absolutely. And as we, we pointed to this on the show before, um, perfect theology is a really stupid goal. Yeah. <laughs> um, because you're, you're trying to understand the infinite in your finite mind. And as we is, is is a bit of a almost a glib point at this at this juncture, but it is a very true one. Uh, the the devil can ch- quote chapter and verse. So we're a church that preaches the Bible is not that not as compelling a pitch as you think, friend. Um, so, <laughs> Chad, all that said, where would we take this? Uh, it's a great question. I'm glad that you wrote in. So. A few caveats before I, I give you my answer. The first is, I am not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm just some guy. Um, I will tell you my personal journey on this, and if it's useful to you, that's great. If it's not, you know, listen to something else. Um, I was raised in a super, super, super conservative um, environment where everything was a sin, Uh like literally everything, just all of it. Like if you wonder, the answer is yes, that too is a sin. Um, today, um, I am very, very blessed to have um, dear friends and family members and artistic collaborators who are gay and lesbian and trans. And as a person, I am fully affirming of my gay and lesbian and trans brothers and sisters. You don't have to agree with me on that, but that is where I'm coming from. But I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I went from my upbringing, which again, everything was a sin, to where I am today, in case it's useful for you. So when I was a kid, um, two things that are worth noting, Christians did not get divorced and they did not drink. Um, 
I don't think I can remember a person that I knew in a church growing up who drank ever. And if I knew a person who had been in a divorce, it was like one person and we never talked about it because it was like this deeply shameful secret that we keep in a corner and we never actually acknowledge. And obviously today, um, plenty of Christians drink in a healthy way. Um, it's very, very common to have people who have been divorced or separated or remarried that are a part of churches. And I raise that to say that clearly Christians can embrace a, a journey of progress and an evolution if they choose to, if they have a desire to figure out how to be more kind and more merciful to people. So what would that look like here when we talk about people who are gay or lesbian or trans or bisexual or non-binary? I think there's a few things that would help on that journey. It certainly have been helpful as my thinking has evolved. The first is to be aware that in history, generally speaking, when we look at antiquity, when we look at biblical times, gay relationships as they exist today didn't really exist in that time in the world. In other words, if you think of a gay couple living in downtown Chicago and they are equal partners in life and they... Um, uh, are clear with themselves and with each other and with the outside world that I am gay and that is a part of my personhood and a part of my identity. And again, we are equal partners and we are in a committed, long-term, nurturing relationship. That didn't really exist in antiquity. That didn't really exist in biblical times. Here's why that's important. Whatever the Bible is talking about when it comes to issues of homosexuality, at the very least, in part, it's talking about something other than what exists today, right? Because it's it, what exists today didn't exactly exist then, so it is by default describing something else. Let me walk you through a few of the things that it could be describing because these things did exist. There was this very weird Greek concept called pederasty, um, where it was the sexual linking of older men and teen boys. That's a real thing. Um, having sex with your slaves was a super common thing. It's worth noting that because consent is not possible there, that is rape. Um, temple prostitutes was a real thing that absolutely happened, was a big thing going on. And we don't know how much of this happened, but enough happened for people to talk about it. In the Roman era, orgies were super common. Um, and so there was a lot of sexual stuff that the Bible had room to talk about that was definitely going on and that may well be the things that are being described in the passages people want to run to to talk about homosexuality. But again, gay relationships as we know them in 2023 didn't exactly exist then. Here's the next thing. If you look at the half dozen passages and stories in the Bible that seem to address this, and what my gay friends would refer to them as are clobber passages, those pretty much all have fairly indeterminate meanings once you start looking at the broader context, right? Like if you, if you tell me, well, you can't eat pork, the, the next question should be, why not? Like, explore, the, break that down for me. As you start digging into the what's going on in the broader context, we don't have a lot of good information, and it's hard to be sure exactly what's being described. There are no passages—I'm not a Bible scholar—there are no passages that I'm aware of that would constitute a slam dunk. And the ones that people turn to the most—this is weird but true—Paul literally invented a word. There's a word that he uses in First Timothy, and I believe in First Corinthians, that he made up. It's, it's basically a portmanteau that there's no evidence of anyone using in the Greek language prior to him. It's used a little bit afterwards, but, but not before. Because he literally invented it, it's not exactly clear what he means. It has something to do with sexuality, um, but it, 
it's it's not super clear, and um, the the precise meaning is probably lost to history. Next up, we have a lot of stuff that we're not sure about, but then we do have um, relationships, for example, like David and Jonathan, that are praised or looked at as a really good thing. So you know, when gay folks read the story of David and Jonathan, they are seeing that as a gay relationship. They're looking at that and they're saying this has all of the constituent pieces of what I would describe as gay partners. Um, I have a lot of gay friends. I have asked uh, in the majority of cases, I promise you, this is the way it's being read. That doesn't make my my gay friends right. It doesn't make people who read it differently wrong. But it is worth acknowledging that this is something that rings a very strong certain way to people who are gay, and it is absolutely held up as a good thing in the Bible. The one person who was not in favor of David and Jonathan, it turns out, was Saul, who, as a spoiler alert, was the villain in that story. Like, he was, he was very much not the hero. Real quick, anything related to being gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender or non-binary is absent from all of the summary teachings of the Bible and all the summary teachings of the church. It's not in the Ten Commandments. It's not in Jesus' teachings. It's not in Jesus' greatest commandments. It's not in the Apostles' Creed. Here's why I mentioned that. It would be one thing for churches to say, look, this is a disputable matter. Different people can think differently. But what you're seeing in evangelicalism right now is a move to make this a part of orthodoxy, that to disenfranchise gay people is a requirement to be a Christian. That move is a move away from orthodoxy. Right. Orthodoxy is the Apostles' Creed. It's not in the Apostles' Creed. Adding to the Apostles' Creed to advance a political agenda, that is a move away from orthodoxy. Here's perhaps the last thing and perhaps the most important thing. Gay people exist. I need you to think about that. Gay people exist. And conversion therapy does not work. People have tried everything from brain surgery to praying the gay away. If you don't know that, you should know that. People have tried everything you can possibly think of, and it doesn't work, and it hurts people. There are gay people in the world. They are not going to stop being gay. Given that, Christians have an obligation to say, how do I love my gay neighbor? Yep. How, how do I love my gay neighbor? How do I, I know that God wants them to have life and life to the full because Jesus said so. How do I make sure that my gay neighbor can have life and life to the full? You will have to decide for yourself what that looks like. For me, treating a gay person like an outcast, telling them that they are bad, telling them that they can't be married, telling them that they can't come to church, telling them they can't be a part church. I personally am not able to look at that in any way and say, well, that's me loving my neighbor. I get the argument of, well, we don't want them to go to hell. I, I, I hear you. I don't think you have landed on anything loving in any way, shape, or form, even a little bit. Again, you don't have to agree with me on these things. I'm not even asking you to agree with me on these things, but I am asking you to consider gay people exist. They're not going to stop being gay, and you have an absolute requirement as a Christian to figure out how to love this person. And I would suggest to you that you may have been taught that to, that, and we don't have to get into semantics, but, 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 you know, to be gay is to be a sin. I would submit to you that the biblical case for believing that is actually 
ridiculously weak. I think it's worth your study and consideration, and you don't have to take my word for it. There's a book from a very famous Christian writer and ethicist. It's actually an incredibly conservative dude. His name is David P. Gushy, last name G-U-S-H-E-E. Again, David P. Gushy. The book is called Changing Our Mind. I would encourage you at the very least to read that book and give it some real consideration. Absolutely right. All fantastic stuff uh, from these guys. And it is, I, I really like Jed saying there, this is something that is worth thinking about, getting these resources about, studying down for yourself um, and for to help you love uh, LGBT, your LGBT plus neighbors, friends. Um, this is not going to be a thing I would, I would caution. You're not going to win the argument with these people. And I mean, the, the people who yeah. um, are trying to out they're churching it so hard that the denominational council, who I'm sure, if things went the other way, these people at your church would be the first one saying, hey, you got to submit to authority. They studied the word. They prayed on it. They came down with the thing. As soon as they come around the thing, it says, oh, no, you can't. It's unchristian to be awful to trans folks. So, well, what do they know? We're, we're breaking yep. away. That's a little bit of picky choosy. We do have, again, in, in America, uh, a couple of cardinals who famously, um, uh, whenever the Pope hands something down that's even mildly progressive, they uh, wig out and talk about how he's the devil. And I yep. don't, I'm not Catholic. I wasn't raised in that tradition. Here's the thing I know. I think you're supposed to, I think the Pope has the final word on that stuff <laughs> if you're a Catholic. And same goes with Anglicanism, Presbyterianism, all these people. It's fascinating. It's interesting to watch. And we've we've learned over many years that calling out, just saying someone, and yeah, you're a hypocrite, doesn't make them change their behavior. But it's good for yourself just to remember and watch. Think if the shoe was on the other foot. If this thing that came down from the nomination and said, nope, we reject same-sex marriage uh, wholly, we don't care that the government approves of it, we we will not, whatever they're doing, came out of the way. Are these the same people who would say, well, we're we're so glad, and if you don't like it, you just here's I'm just going to email you the thing and. You know, you got to submit to authority, and here's Romans 13, and here's, you know, the thing about uh, do not be a, a a burden upon your caretakers and all that stuff. When they don't get what they want, they go the other way. And that also tells you something about what they see as inviolable to their faith, the point about yep. maybe needing to find a new church. This, this, this council didn't come down and say that the Eucharist doesn't exist. They didn't say that, they didn't go way, way old school and say that, uh, Jesus d- deny Jesus's divinity or the two spirits and the one persons and the Greek stuff. I never quite understand. They didn't talk about a bodily resurrection. They said, eh, you know, the government says that same sex marriages are fine and we should probably, based on our reading of scripture, we can, we can go along with that. And they said, Whoa, Whoa, that's not, I didn't sign up to be nice to people who are different than me. That's yeah. not why I got into this religion. And as we say a lot on the show, if that's the case, you need to find another religion. Almost any of them will be fine. But the, uh, the hey, this, this, is, this says I should be kind to someone whose lifestyle I find outside of my understanding and off-putting. Yes, that's literally almost all of the words that came out of Jesus' face were saying something to that effect. So, yes. welcome, friend. And on that note, we'll move on to our final question here. Uh, a little change of pace comes out, comes in and says, what are Titus and Philemon about? They don't seem to come up much in church. A little lighter fare, but I think another excellent question, Lee. Some of those uh, smaller books that fall in the back of the uh, the New Testament there that we never uh, uh, they have they have both. I've heard them both be 
preached on at the uh, church that Lee the pastor at, but I have a feeling that's in a, a huge minority. So uh, if you could give us the thumbnail, what are these about? I will tell you, first of all, this is a great question. I will tell you, first of all, um, the book of Philemon comes up a lot in black churches. So this is, it's the, the book of Philemon doesn't come up a lot in white churches, but, um, why might that be? uh (laughs) And in fact, when it does come up, there's a, uh, when you see white biblical commentators, they will talk about Philemon as they will, they will call him a runaway slave. Well, there is no reason in the text to call him a runaway slave. Um, it would be well, more the reason appro- in the text is that it makes me feel a lot better about the text. Yeah, it would, it would be more appropriate. And in black churches, you will hear him called an escaped slave. Um, the, the book of Philemon real quick is, uh, the apostle Paul, uh, from prison, uh, basically he was under house arrest in the city of Rome and he wrote a letter to his friend Philemon, who was, uh, was a part of the church in Colossae. He was actually writing the book of Colossians to the church at Colossae. Well, the church at Colossae met in the home of Philemon, who was a wealthy guy with a big house and he had slaves and the whole thing. And um, one of his slaves had escaped uh, this guy named Onesimus. Um, incidentally, the word Onesimus in Greek means benefit. And um, Paul in a, it's it's not even really a book of the New Testament. It's more like a postcard of the New Testament. Basically, is writing to Philemon and saying, "Hey, I just wrapped up the book of Colossians. I'm sending it there, um, and I'm also sending back with the person who's with the courier of that of that letter, um, someone who I've stumbled upon who has met Jesus and is now following Jesus. And he was your slave, but guess what?" He is now our family member. He is my son, and he is your brother. I want you to accept him fully as a member of the family, and the whole slave thing is over. And um, by the way, I know that you will do this and much more. And by the way, you owe me your very life. <laughs> that's kind of the that's that's kind of the uh, the the overall. Like if you were just to just to sum it up, Paul actually uses. He, it's it's a brilliant uh, case study in how do you get someone how do you uh, convince someone to do something that they might not want to do of their own volition, based on your relationship with them. It's really cool the way that he uses a bunch of encouragement. He uses some humor. He uses a pun at one point. Um, it's just a very very it's a very very interesting book. Um, the book of Titus is a letter that Paul wrote um, to a protege of his. Um, who was a leader? It was it was a part of a church in, um, in on the island of Crete, and in this this church that was meeting in Crete, um, some of the leaders of the church had basically they were they were after kind of power grabs because they were able to use their position to make a lot of money, and as a result, there were a lot of relationships that were getting out of hand, and it was just it was the church was becoming a mess. It was just like. It, it, was, it was, there was a lot of drama, there were a lot of problems, and, and maybe you've been a part of enough churches to where you are giggling at this point, and maybe there's somebody that's like, no way, not problems for power and money struggles in a church, but this is what was going on, to the extent that they were starting to have kind of an odious uh, reputation with the outside world. This is where Paul steps in, and he's saying to Titus, we need to get this 
underhand. Because one thing that was very, very important to the Apostle Paul was that anybody that walked with Jesus had a good reputation with people outside of the faith. That was a very big deal to him. Of course, there's always going to be people that, that hate on people of faith, but his thing was, one of his big tenets was, we need to have a good reputation with those outside the church. So we need to figure out how to make this orderly. We need to get these people under control. We need, to, uh, we need the relationships to be strong. This, the book of Titus has one of Paul's strongest statements about setting a boundary in relationships. Um, we talk a lot on this, on this podcast about boundaries, um, but he talks specifically about people that cause division in the community of believers. And he says, warn a divisive person once, then warn them twice, and then after that, have nothing to do with them. He's saying it is important that this community be orderly, that it be about love, that it not be about power or money, that it not be divisive. It's important that the outside world looks at believers in Jesus as people that know how to love each other, as people that know how to share, as people that are generous, people that are kind. Let's aim at that. Now, obviously, if you if you are a person who lives in the United States, this whole thing is just like, it's almost like it's laughable because the amount of times that Christians in churches have made power and money grabs and have given the faith of Jesus a bad, odious stench in the outside world is unbelievable. And, um, and we can all kind of stack hands and say how important it is that we make sure that as people who follow Jesus, that we have the kind of reputation as people who are generous, who are about love, who have kind relationships, the kind of thing that you would look at and say, those are people who know how to love each other. That's just kind of a 30,000 foot view. Those are the books of uh, Titus and Philemon. Great, great summary of that. Uh, Jet, Jet, anything you would add to that? It's great stuff. Uh, add a couple things. And I think actually in a, an interesting way, this kind of links back to our previous question. And I'm really just talking about Philemon here. And it is an interesting case study in needing to evaluate for yourself as a person what role you want the Bible to play in your life and what role God wants it to play in your life. And let, let me break down what I mean. So one of the things about living in the 21st century is we know things pretty definitively that we did not know 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. So I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Um, and I, I, I know that I may really break some hearts with the following statement, but here it goes. The earth is probably more than 6,000 years old. Oh, <gasps> I is, cast thee out. Yeah, yeah, it's... <laughs> I know, I know. And look, I take no pleasure in saying it, but... How dare yeah. you come on our Young Earth Creationist podcast, <laughs> yeah. which we have been the whole time, listener. I don't know if you picked up on it, but it's in every episode. And say such a thing, Jed. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I like to stir the pot, the billions of years old pot. Um, so <laughs> here's, here's the reason that I mentioned the age of the Earth is that, you know, for a long time, we didn't really know how old the Earth might be. And so some people, you know, kind of did some math based on the Bible. Like, I guess it's probably about 6,000 years. And be like, okay, well, that sounds cool. But now we know pretty definitively that the Earth's definitely more than 6,000 years old. And so that knowledge invites us to reevaluate the way that we think about some Bible passages and to recognize the Bible is not a science textbook. And we are not required as people of faith to view it that way. And that it is not an insult to the Bible. It's not denying its divine inspiration to say the point of Genesis is that God created the heavens and the earth. 
and that he did it on purpose. The point is not to specify the exact age of the universe. This matters because, again, it points to you're going to have to decide what you want your relationship with the Bible to look like in your faith, right? And there are absolutely people who tell you, no, anything other than accepting that the earth is whatever, 5,700 years old, is heresy, and it's you denying the inerrancy of Scripture, and it's you spitting in the face of God. There are absolutely people who would tell you that. I can safely uh, speak for all of my co-hosts in saying we are not those people, and we super do not agree with that. Now, all that said, here's what that has to do with Philemon. Paul said some weird stuff about slavery. It's true. He did. He told slaves to obey their masters. He did it a couple of times. And um, there may be cultural reasons why that made sense then. There may be things there that, you know, maybe slavery was really, really different then than it is today. There's people have authored have offered about a dozen theories on on what the what the explanation could be and how it could work. There's actually not a consensus opinion on the right way to go with that. But, but here's what we're left with. We're left with knowing that just as moral people in the 21st century, that slavery is a horrific injustice that must be stamped out worldwide in all of its forms. I want to repeat that because I don't want there to be any confusion. Slavery in all of its forms is a horrific injustice. It is an affront to God and to all things that are decent in this world, and it must be destroyed in every form in perpetuity. And if you disagree with me on that, do not bother to email me about it. That is not a conversation that I'm interested in having. That is not uh, open to discussion. Slavery is an evil, evil thing, and you know in your heart that that is true. What do we do then with these passages that seem to be pro-slavery? The short answer is, I don't know, and neither does anybody else. And it's something that you're going to have to decide on for yourself. But Philemon offers us an interesting thing, which is to say, that's not the only thing that Paul had to say about slavery. Yeah. Because even though in one context he said slaves obey your masters, in another context, exactly as Lee said, he basically talked to a guy who was a slave owner and said, hey, but not for this guy anymore, right? So like um, – and you're going you're gonna to let that go and you're going to welcome this guy back and it's going to be cool, right? Yeah. What, do we, what do we do with that? I think what we do at least in part is to say scripture is not always cut and dry. That's the first thing. And people who told you that Scripture was always cut and dry were lying to you. It's not. Um, it's going to involve some work. It's going to involve some, some soul-searching. It's going to involve some, some courage. And it's not always easy. And there isn't always a one-size-fits-all answer. And it's okay for you to have a thing where you say, look, I don't really know how to reconcile the words in this book on this topic with what I also believe in life. You're, you're actually allowed to be there. Um, you're allowed to say, this appears to be pro-slavery. Maybe there's um, things I'm not seeing, things I'm not getting. And again, through the millennium, people have suggested dozens and dozens of, well, it's more like this than this. But you're allowed to say, I don't really get that, but I do know for sure I am fully against slavery, the end. You are allowed to say both of those things, Part of the reason these don't get brought up, particularly in white churches terribly often, is they don't want you to do that. They want Scripture to be cut and dry. They want things to be straightforward with a neat bow on top. And this is an example of something in the Scripture, just as with our last question, where it's very difficult to put a neat bow on top of it. And instead, we are left to try and figure out 
how to live out the principles of Scripture of love and acceptance and forgiveness and grace in a world that is very complicated and often eludes easy answers. Yes, I said early in the show that we don't give in for hot takes and that kind of thing, but um, slavery bad is closer to a hot take in the current American political climate than it should be. Yeah. yeah. So there we go. Uh, awesome stuff from these guys on all of these questions. Um, as we pointed out, it's kind of a tie bow on uh, both of our kind of big topics today. As we've pointed out many times in the show, everybody everywhere is picking and choosing. Yep. There's yeah. no such thing as uh, dealing with as fully buying into and applying everything that's in the Bible because, mm-hmm. and I cover your ears, dear seminary friends. Some things in the Bible say the exact opposite of what some other things in the Bible seem to say. Yep. <laughs> now, some of those you can get some commentary and read, and you can figure that out, and it'll it'll kind of sing a little better. Sometimes, yeah, these just kind of seem to say very different things. So everybody is picking and choosing. If you find if you are around people who are consistently and maybe only picking and choosing in one direction, so as Jed points out, if things like the the uh would the phrase you use the kind of smash verses for uh, oh clobber verses the clobber verses well that's just that's just the word that's yeah. what it says you know there's the okay well what about every time a rich person talks to Jesus he's like you better sell everything you have or you're pretty much going to hell <laughs> yeah but like well yeah. that's very uh, you know it's metaphorical I mean, Matthew metaphorical and you know, the things at the time and whatnot. Okay, what about the place Paul says, well, slavery is clearly bad. Well, that's actually more complicated than you think. Like, uh, very interesting pattern emerges in what's complicated and what's simple. Yeah. Fascinating that. Um, so uh, don't, don't ever feel bad that you're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm kind of picking this way and choosing that way. Everybody's doing that. They're doing that based on guiding principles. We've been talking about the show. Love God via loving your neighbor is a pretty good guiding principle. Uh, the word, the, we, that's the one we would point you to. Pretty good scriptural case. That's the one Jesus would point you to when it comes to these more complicated matters to try to make your way through. All right. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, tell the song this week. This sticks on the week's theme, I think. This is a song from Jed called Not a Judge. Say that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm not a judge and I'm not the police. Father, I'm your child. You're the one that chose me. Yeah.